It's Super Tuesday, and my write-in candidate? I'll give you a hint, he's sitting right next to me on this Consumer Goods edition of Industry Focus. Greetings, fools. Sean O'Reilly here at Fool Headquarters in Alexandria, Virginia. It is Tuesday, March 1st, 2016, and joining me to chat about hotel spinoffs and the politics of retaxation is the assiduous Vincent Chen. What's up? How are you doing, Sean? Um, not too bad. Um, you are my writing candidate, by the way. Um, I, I was going to go with Dylan on the tech show, but I think you, I think you give a good speech and it'd be good. So, nothing, like nothing personal, so. Dylan. Uh, thank you for the endorsement. <laughs> the, the 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 Shen Lewis ticket. I like it. <laughs> anyway, um, so hotel spinoffs and REIT taxation. Yes. Uh, big announcement out of Hilton. What an exciting topic! Holy smokes! <laughs> um, first, though, we wanted to revisit some topics from previous shows because we've got some really okay, pretty I funny updates. This is the last time we're going to talk about this because we've already touched on listeners. It we know you episodes. just groaned. We're sorry. All right, go ahead. But uh, <laughs> I just want to touch on this one more time, just because. It is really interesting. So again, third weekend in a row now. Deadpool has topped the weekend box office, beat out a bunch you didn't of new go releases. See it again, did you? No, of course not. Okay. And of course not. What does that mean? <laughs> well, I saw Star Wars four times, but I'm not going to see Deadpool right. that many times in the theaters. So the movie generated another 31.5 million dollars in ticket sales. So its domestic haul now is at 285 million, and its worldwide total is over 600 million now to 610. Uh, so. That officially makes Deadpool the third highest-grossing R-rated film in the domestic box office. It only trails American Sniper and uh, Passion of the Christ. How much did those guys make? Do you know off the top of your head? It's a pr- it's a small. Is it, are, is it close? Uh, I don't I don't think it's that that close. Okay. I don't recall. Right. Wow. And, I remember um, Passion of the Christ made like a billion dollars mm-hmm. or something. So anyway, all right. And then if the movie can kind of maintain this pace, have another couple uh, strong weeks ahead of it. Uh, it will potentially break into the top 10 list of highest grossing comic book adaptations, according to Box Office Mojo. So, if it breaks into the top 10, you know, other movies that have qualified for that list are huge. Think like Avengers, Dark Knight, the original Spider Man trilogy, Guardians of the Galaxy. So, you know, for again, the for, original Spider Man trilogy before he went emo. <laughs> <laughs> so, for, uh, you know, a lesser known uh, hero, it's very That's, impressive. Yeah, it's a big deal. And then, um, yeah, so. The next story, this is really juicy. Uh, <laughs> right after, a week after we, mm-hmm. a week or two after we do our autonomous car show, what does a Google car go and do? Gets it in a car accident with a bus. Okay. What the heck happened? Like, uh, So, uh, I think in a previous episode we had mentioned the fact that Google has been testing some of its driverless cars. and They've gone it, like two million miles, It's right? logged yeah. many, many miles. And though it's been involved in some accidents, it was usually rear-ended at like a red light, and it wasn't the driverless car that was at fault. Right. So now there's been a uh, this is a, this accident itself actually happened on Valentine's Day, but the report from like the DMV didn't come out until late February, mm-hmm. and so. Um, this was in Mountain View, Mountain View, California, one of Google's autonomous cars. Uh, they were involved in an accident with a public transit bus, as you mentioned. So, uh, you know, the company's been testing with a fleet of over 20 of these cars, and they and the official number is like over 1.5 million miles long. That's a lot of miles, point. yeah. Um, and though there's been like a dozen collisions at least. This is the, potentially the first one that they believe was actually the fault of the software in the car. Okay, and. Um, you know, that's I guess obviously what makes it a, definitely Google a bit say more they notable. Were partially responsible, weren't those? So the words? you know, basically what happened is the car was making a right turn. There were some sandbags 
blocking a storm drain. The car needed to get around it by changing into the next lane. Mm-hmm. It stopped, waited for some cars to pass, but the software and then also the person in that car, because the law currently states that someone needs to be in the mm-hmm. car to take control in case there's an emergency, they both assumed or believed that the bus that was coming up would slow down or yield to them. So when they pulled out, it was only like two miles per hour. They kind of uh, mm-hmm. sideswiped the bus. No injuries. You know, kind of a you know a smaller fender bender kind of accident. Right. But you know, the main thing is Google acknowledged that like there was definitely some assumptions made. This, you know, the software is definitely partially responsible at the very least, right? Because they did ultimately pull pull out into the lane and collide with the bus. Um, but they're making adjustments, so they're kind of. Uh, Tweaking the software basically to potentially to potentially anticipate that you know larger vehicles like buses might not yield all the time, and you know overall I just wanted to bring this up to touch on the fact that they hilarious. S- yeah, it's, it was a fender bender, and you know it, it shows you how difficult it can be to try and always improve on this technology that's involved in like a process essentially it's as dynamic and really unpredictable as the common roadway. Right. So we'll see, you know, what kind of impacts this have. But overall, I think it's just uh, an interesting update after our two recent shows. And uh, last little story here. Lego is building itself into the largest toy company. Um, did you read that article I wrote about investing on my son's behalf for the next 16 years or whatever? And I joke at the end about I wish I could buy shares in Lego. So yes. this is really funny. And there's a reason. For, like, I, I would kill to own this company. So go ahead. Uh, so here's another one that kind of ties into recent episodes that uh, where we covered like Disney and Star Wars, for example, and other toy companies. So Lego privately held, but still a really amazing business. You know, incredible brand power. Um, they report annual results since they're privately held, and they were they enjoyed an amazing 2015, uh, where revenue increased 25% to 35.8 billion Danish kroner, which is about 5.2 billion dollars. Their net profit rose 31% to about 1.3 billion dollars. They enjoyed double-digit sales growth in pretty much all of their markets, um, and that. You got to keep in mind that's far outpacing most countries where they're seeing uh, industry growth at maybe like mid single digits. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of most ever's for the company this year. They launched 350 new products in 2015, most ever for the company. They moved about 72 billion bricks and 725 million minifigures. That is a lot during of the year. Uh, and they, you know, 100 million children interacted with the company through its toys and other initiatives. Interestingly enough, the best sellers for the year for the company uh, were actually a castle from Frozen, Elsa's Frozen Castle. And number two, which I thought would be number one, was the awesome Millennium Falcon from Star Wars. Wow. And uh, so... Lego very quickly building up to potentially be the largest toy company in the world by revenue. That title is currently held by uh, Mattel. So, uh, as I mentioned, Lego logged $5.2 billion in revenue for 2015. Mattel had $5.7 billion. And the thing is, you know, the trajectories are very different. You know, right. Lego's been in a great growth path, Mattel's been in an opposite one. But right. the effects of that are a little different. Um, you know, they were grappling with the falling pop- popularity of some of their bigger brands like American Girls and Barbie, and they've also been hit really hard by some of the currency fluctuations and the strength of the US dollar, obviously. But uh, they only had $540 million in operating income. And compare that to Lego, which had net profits of $1.3 billion. Um, and Lego's been well known as having as being the most profitable toy company in right. the world. And so, uh, the comp- Mattel here is, they've 
seen a turnaround in some of their other brands, but they're anticipating a pretty tough 2016 because they lost that Disney Princess mm-hmm. licensing deal. And um, overall, for Lego at least, looking ahead, you know, the CFO John Goodwin he noted that uh, for this year. They're going to really focus on markets in Latin America and in Asia. It's really crazy because China, they think is they've only it's like tip of the iceberg for them, but they saw thirty five percent growth in that wow. market last year. Yeah, and then you know an issue that they had with such incredible success on the back of Star Wars and these um, and like and the Lego Frozen movie. for and example stuff, yeah. and Lego Movie is that they're having a hard time honestly keeping up with demand so they encountered some operational difficulties uh, especially during the holiday season so the company uh, and another one of their most evers uh, poured about four, 410 million dollars into their manufacturing facilities in 2015 with expansions in like China and their other facilities it's the most they've ever spent in their company history and so they're and they also increased their workforce 20% during the year, wow. Um, and then long term, you know, the company has had an incredible run. You know, they've had a decade where of fifteen percent annual growth. So management's, I guess, trying to temper expectations a bit, mm-hmm. saying like, you know, this isn't going to be sustainable forever. But they're expecting a really strong twenty sixteen again with double digit growth. And um, you know, they managed quadruple sales in the past decade. Which has otherwise been a period that's kind of hurt a lot of the other tour companies because, you know, you got mobile devices, electronics taking a lot of mind share and market share away Mm -hmm. in terms of from from traditional toys. And um, I think. Lego's going to be riding some of these trends pretty well because they got, you know, they had the really successful 2014 Lego movie. They have some games coming out, more more on the electronics video game side to, to build up on. No, I've got multiple fairly large tubs in my parents' basement for when I was a kid with Lego, and it's and it was kind of a big deal then. Mm-hmm. And what it's become, and the pandemonium that you see when I, I took my two-year-old to the um, Lego store at Tyson's Corner Mall. Yes, I've been and there. I like worried about his safety because he's smaller than all the other kids, and we're trying to navigate through here. And it was just like, <laughs> well, it's funny you mentioned that. You know, I was home this past weekend, at my ch- where I grew up. Did you did you build your old Legos? And nice. you know, I had to do a lot of cleaning up around the house in the garage, and I found so many of our old Legos, and it's just it is. You wanted to sit down, definitely a brand and a toy that, despite its simplicity and how uh, popular it has been, it, you know, it's not seeing any. Any decrease, right. it's you know, kids still love it, even with all the electronics and other comp- competition that seems to be taking away from you know the traditional toy segment. Cool. Well, before we move on to talking about Hilton's big news, I wanted to point our listeners to focus.fool.com. There you'll discover a special offer to join the Motley Fool's Stock Advisor newsletter to start your year off foolishly. All loyal IF listeners have access to a special discount on Stock Advisor that works out to $129 for a full two year subscription. Just go to focus.fool.com to take advantage of this offer. Once again, that is focus.fool.com. Uh, so moving on to our big story of the day, yes. um, I think the actual news broke on February 26th. Yeah, they announced it with their earnings. Um, Hilton officially making the split, kind of following in the footsteps of Marriott, although mm-hmm. Marriott took considerably longer to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're splitting into what three businesses? Vince? Sure. Um, so just to give you a little bit of background, okay. um, no, it's fine. Uh, for I think it was like October of last year, mm-hmm. the CEO, his name's Chris Nasetta. Um, he had announced that Hilton was pursuing some strategic alternatives, looking into what options they potentially had. My favorite two words in corporate America. <laughs> and specifically, uh, they had requested a ruling from the IRS 
for its REIT spinoff, you know, not mm-hmm. not long after October. Um, and they actually did it. The timing worked out very well for them where it, they were able to get that ruling just before legislation went into effect where basically Congress banned the which the further use of these right. tax-free REIT spinoffs and it's the, really the tax-free ones that are so attractive and have been so attractive to companies um you know some big high profile ones that have happened recently at the behest often by the way of like activist investors mm-hmm. like uh, MGM did their REIT spinoff yeah. Darden Restaurants did uh, some other companies have been pressured by shareholders to do mm-hmm. so think McDonald's and Macy but they pers- but they chose not to now that that uh, avenue is closed. It's always amazing to me. We won't get too much into the politics, obviously, here, but um, one, I didn't know that was the case. I didn't know that Congress closed that loophole as part of the budget deal. I didn't. I was like, mm-hmm. what? I, do you think they're mad because of what the. Because multiple casino companies, I think, have done this. And I was just very, very surprised. Well, I think overall, you know, people like REITs for, I, I think, two core reasons being obviously they're not. They're taxed very little or not right. at all at the corporate entity level. As long as they pay out ninety percent of, of their of their taxable income, yeah, yeah their taxable yeah. income. And generally, REITs have better multiples than their mm-hmm. traditional parent companies. So you combine that, and you know, Congress commented specifically that by you know no longer allowing um, these tax-free REIT spinoffs, they're going to be able to recoup like several billion dollars in tax mm-hmm. revenue over the next several years. And I think that's a big driver of this. Well, yeah, and that was my other comment. Um, it always amazes me how many corporate actions that involve billions of dollars and hundreds of thousands of workers are done because of the tax code. Because mm-hmm. in the 80s, in the buyout boom, one of the rationales was, oh, we can just load these companies up with debt because the debt and expense is tax deductible. Yay! Mm-hmm. And it's funny to me. Anyway, um, so what are Hilton's exact plans? Yes. They haven't been super specific yet. So, getting back to your, uh, to your original uh, point in terms of what the three entities are. So, you have Hilton Worldwide now, and then it'll be there'll be two spin-offs. Uh the first is the REIT and uh the REIT's going to get about 70 owned and leased properties from Hilton mm-hmm. Worldwide's portfolio, about half of its portfolio actually. Um though uh those 70 properties include mostly upscale US hotels and um it represents a total of about 35,000 rooms. And then uh, in addition to that, they're also to be splitting off their timeshare business. So the timeshare company takes about 50 properties in the U.S. and Europe, um, and it's also going to run with the current management team of that business. That division's huge, by the way. It's way bigger than I thought it was. Mm-hmm. Like what, 12 percent of their 12 percent of, yeah. to- of total revenue, exactly. Uh, so you know that business is going to enjoy an exclusive agreement with Hilton, so they can market, market, and operate results under the Hilton Grand Vacations brand. Um, and then Hilton itself is going to largely run as an operating company for its namesake hotels and also some of the other ones or the other brands within its portfolio. It's like Doubletree, Waldorf Astoria, Conrad. And so, you know, now yeah, that one company, three new entities, they're hoping to complete the deal by year end. Mm-hmm. And, um, there's not wanna- as many details as uh, I would like to share with our listeners right now. Uh, they have basically during the earnings call, everybody's asking them questions about this, right. and they're answering as much as they can. But ultimately, they're saying, like, listen, we have filings coming in the second quarter where it's going to be, you know, much heavier in terms of the numbers and allow you to do your analysis. But just, uh, I guess, to present this in a different way, a proxy or precedent that we have, as you yeah. mentioned, is through Marriott, actually. Um, so, 
Marriott International is actually going to unseat Hilton soon as the number one hotel operator in the world once they finish their acquisition of Starwood Hotels and Resorts. Not only that, um, I don't know if you uh, came, the, came up with this in your research at all, but they're actually, Marriott's really expanding in Africa. Oh, they're I didn't really, really they're stepping up. They had a deal last year to buy a bunch of properties from uh, an African-based hotel chain. They're all dotted South Africa and everything. So yeah, no, I yeah. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. No, that's fine. They're about to reign supreme. Uh, after you know, they announced the twelve billion dollar acquisition of Starwood. Uh, not not too long. I think it was in yeah, December. Yeah. And then, uh, interestingly, you know, Marriott's kind of a, a good test case for what Hilton is planning. Uh, their timeline is very different, but ultimately, uh, you know how. They operate now is very similar to the structure that Hilton will have. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, Marriott spun off its real estate business in 1993, so way back when, um, and then that company eventually uh, converted to a REIT in 1999. It's called Host Hotels and Resorts. Um, interestingly enough, actually, Chris Nasetta, who's the CEO of Hilton now, was the CEO of Host, Host Hotels Ooh, and Resorts. They snagged him, um, but he was poached by Blackstone in 2007 after the private equity company had bought out Hilton. Did they gave him a sack of money, like? $50 million or something. Probably something very attractive. <laughs> but it, I, I guess it's just not all that surprising in this oh, yeah. instance where obviously you have a guy here who's very familiar well, with this type of entity. Yeah. And it's a it's a small club running global hotel brands. But anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, and going even further beyond that, you know, Marriott, all, Marriott also spun off its timeshare business into Marriott Vacations Worldwide in 2011. And uh, if there's any you know indication of the potential there, Merit Vacations Worldwide stock it's tripled since its creation in, in, over the past you know four-ish years, four or five years, and um, the Hilton timeshare business, like you mentioned, it's only twelve percent of revenue, but it's been logging strong, strong growth. It's a way bigger chunk of their profits. As I yeah, recall. exactly. Yeah. Uh, much more substantial piece of the profits and much better growth than the broader hotel uh, business, and so uh, we expect way more details once the yeah. Once the filings are in, but it's uh, definitely uh, an interesting move and one of the last probably major re- tax-free REIT spinoffs that we're going to see. Right, Hilton. Do you want to do you want to invest in a timeshare with me before we go? No. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Vince, for your thoughts. Thank you. If you're a loyal listener and have questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Just email us at industryfocus at fool.com. Again, that is industryfocus at fool.com. As always, people in this program may have interest in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against those stocks, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear on this program. For Vincent Shen, I'm Sean O'Reilly. Thanks for listening, and Fool on!